Thank you everyone for coming to the London Aesthetics Forum today. As always, we're grateful to the British Society of Aesthetics. Um, uh, grateful to the British Society of Aesthetics for their continued support of this series. We're very pleased to have Sasha Newton here today. She is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of California in Riverside. Uh, she studied for a PhD at the University of Pittsburgh and subsequently taught at the University of Illinois, Havana Champaign. Is now visiting at Leipzig, mm -hmm. uh, the University of Leipzig, um, and has written on Kant's theoretical philosophy, a number of pieces on Kant's theoretical philosophy, um, and will be speaking to us uh, about Kant today, um, but also about uh, judgments of beauty more generally. Her title is On the Subjectivity of Judgments of Beauty. Thank you. Um, so I want to thank you, Andrew, for inviting me to this aesthetics forum. Aesthetics isn't at the center of my research, although I do work on almost all of Kant's philosophy. Um, but I am always glad when I have an opportunity to return to aesthetics, and this, this was an especially welcome one. Um, I should have mentioned Kant in the title. This is a very Kant-heavy paper. Um, but And at times I'm afraid I assume the the reader to know more about Kant than perhaps I should. Um, so no, no issue in Kant's aesthetics. It has received more critical reception than his claim that judgments of beauty are subjective. Rather than revealing any truth about an object, Kant maintains that judgments of beauty express the object's pleasurable effect on the subject. The purpose of this paper is to defend the subjectivity of aesthetic judgments by taking a closer look at what Kant means here by subjectivity. In the first part of the paper, I'll argue that what makes aesthetic judgments subjective is not that beauty is inseparable from the self-conscious judgment of beauty, but that the self-consciousness in these judgments is feeling, not thinking. Aesthetic judgments do not have a logical form and thus cannot reveal truths about an object. They have a merely aesthetic form. They belong not to the I think, but to the I feel. However, the standpoint of feeling is not a limited perspective of an empirical being in the world. In fact, I will argue in the second part that the aesthetic standpoint, the I feel, is a limitless standpoint of the whole of nature informed by freedom has no outside. Aesthetic judgment is subjective not because beauty belongs only to the inner world of subjects in nature, but because it belongs to the interior of the objective world as a whole, an interior that exceeds objectivity but is also inseparable from it. In the third part, I'll elaborate on this by showing that the eye of aesthetic judgment is the unconscious eye, an unconsciousness that is internal to consciousness. And I'll argue that this is related to there being something uncanny, unheimlich, about uh, Kantian beauty in the Freudian sense of the uncanny. So, um, turning to the first part, aesthetic judgment lacks a logical form. In much of her important and deservedly influential work on aesthetic judgment, Hannah Ginsburg has argued that aesthetic judgments are not judgments about pleasure, but judgments made from within the first personal phenomenal experience of pleasure itself. This is why I shall often emphasize that aesthetic judgments are identical with the feeling of pleasure. You can, you can find support for that reading in sections 9 and 10 especially of the analytic of the beautiful. If aesthetic judgments were about pleasure in the relevant sense, 
then I could know that an, ob an object to be beautiful just from knowing that it elicits pleasure of a certain sort without myself having experienced that pleasure. But this is something Kant adamantly denies. He says, quote, what has pleased others can never serve as the ground of an aesthetic judgment. Judgments of beauty must be made from within my own first personal experience of pleasure in beauty. They cannot be made from sideways on. Ginsburg connects this first personal character of aesthetic judgments with the normativity involved in them. On her view, they do not just express my pleasure, but that the object merits pleasure, or that pleasure is appropriate in the face of a given object, something we can only notice, she thinks, from within the experience of pleasure itself. Now, in a paper on the subjectivity of aesthetic judgment, Ginsburg argues that this first personal and normative character of aesthetic judgments is necessary but not sufficient to establish that they are subjective, because one might think that being deserving of pleasure is, like other values, being good or being bad, a feature that objects have independently of any particular experience of the value. For instance, she reads McDowell and Wiggins as suggesting that beauty is like a secondary quality that objects have independently of any particular experience, but that consists in a disposition to elicit a certain kind of experience. Contrary to these views, Ginsburg argues that aesthetic judgment is subjective because there is no beauty outside of the particular first-hand, first-personal experience of pleasure and beauty. Beauty is not, quote, a property that is independent of that experience. So it's not like a dispositional property that the object has independently of being exercised. Suppose we grant Ginsburg that there is no beauty outside of the first personal aesthetic judgment of beauty. Does this show that the judgment is subjective? A closer look at Kant's first critique, I think, suggests that it does not. For Kant also argues there that there is no objective truth or objective validity outside of the first personal logical or cognitive judgment of truth. I'm not going to go through the whole argument here, um, but Kant thinks of truth, I think, not as an external relation of correspondence between a mental item and something in the world, but as an agreement or correspondence of a predicate concept with the object thought under the subject concept, and thus is internal to judgment and its self-consciousness. There is no truth outside of consciousness of truth in judging. In the same way, there is no beauty outside of the awareness of a harmony or subjective unity of powers in one act of aesthetic judging. What makes aesthetic judgment subjective is not that beauty is inseparable from the self-consciousness of a judgment, but that this self-consciousness is not logical apperception, or the I think, but what I will call aesthetic apperception, the I feel. That is, aesthetic judgments lack a logical form. They cannot be brought to logical apperception, or the I think, and for this reason are not objective. Now this uh, idea is sometimes dismissed as absurd, since logical formality is thought to be the schematic formality of linguistic expressions once they have been emptied of their semantic content in the Phrygian, uh, for instance, in the Phrygian schematic uh, form Fx. On that assumption, it might seem laughable to deny to judgments like Rapin's painting is beautiful and illogical form. It appears to have a logical copula, the little word is. 
But it does not demand great historical acumen to recognize that Kant is committed to a very different conception of logical form, one that has an ancient pedigree in Aristotle's use of the term form, eidos. Kantian logical forms of judgment are actualities of mental capacities in judging. They are living conscious activities of judging, not the dead or lifeless structures of linguistic sentences that have been emptied of all expression of consciousness. To discover the form of a judgment in Kant's sense, we must reflect not on the mere linguistic structure of its expression, but on the mental activity of judging itself, on what he calls the unity of consciousness in a judgment. For this reason, Kant was unfazed by the resistance of surface grammar to capturing the difference between logical and aesthetic forms of judgment. As Kant understands a logical form of judgment, it consists, this is his definition of logical form, I have it on your handout under B, it consists in the determination of the way that various representations belong as such to one consciousness. That is, a determination of the way they belong to one I think. I'm going to skip over um, several paragraphs elaborating on what that means because I want to get to aesthetic judgment. But the core idea is that Kant thinks that um, self-consciousness and logical judging is conceptual. Whenever I combine representations in one logical unity of consciousness, I subsume them under the concept of the manner in which I'm unifying them. So for instance, if I judge categorically, the table is brown, S is P, I think S and P under the logical concept of their unity. In this case, the concept of the copula is that holds these representations together and determines their unity. And Kant thinks that this logical apperception, this logical self-consciousness in acts of thinking and judging is required for objective cognition, for relating to an object in judgment. This is because the concept of the object, which he calls a category, is for Kant a logical concept. It's the concept of a logical function of judging in its material use in relation to sensibility. So a judgment cannot relate to an object or be objective for Kant if it lacks a logical form. Kant may at first glance, at first glance he might appear to ascribe logical form to aesthetic judgments since he analyzes aesthetic judgment under the moments of quality, quantity, relation, and modality, the four moments that distinguish the logical forms of judging on Kant's and, um, table of judgments in general logic. But notice that Kant refrains from speaking of the four moments here as categories of judging, which rest on logical functions, and that he replaces each of the logical functions of judging with aesthetic counterparts. Under quality, for instance, the logical functions of affirmation and negation are replaced by interested and disinterested pleasure and displeasure. The three logical quantities are substituted by the aesthetic subjective quantities of private validity and universal validity, the logical relations by purposiveness without or with a purpose, and finally, the logical modalities are replaced by the actuality and exemplary necessity of pleasure, which unlike logical necessity is not grounded in a rule or concept. I've listed those um, four under the four moments in your handout. Some readings of Kant do not deny that aesthetic judgment has a non-logical form 
but covertly understand these judgments as, in fact, logical. Ginsburg's view, mentioned above, is a case in point, I think. She says that aesthetic judgments say of an object that it is deserving of pleasure. This is to treat beauty as a property ascribed to objects, a subjective normative property of being deserving of pleasure, but a property nonetheless. So she views the aesthetic judgment as in the business of ascribing a property to an object, which is to see it as in the business of uh, logically judging. Other views treat beauty as a kind of dispositional property, a property of regularly eliciting pleasure in subjects. All of these views speak of the beauty as if beauty were a property of the object and the judgment logical, but as Kant suggests in the longer quote under D on your handout, um, this is a wrong analysis of the judgment of the beautiful. In fact, he says, it is only aesthetic and contains merely a relation of the representation of the object to the subject. So rather saying, than saying that my pleasure is as it ought to be in relation to the object, an aesthetic judgment says that the object is as it should be in relation to me, the subject. This is not saying that the object has a property because it is simply an expression of my pleasure. Pleasure is a state of mind in which the object is felt to agree with me and thus to be as it should be. So the judgment doesn't say that the object deserves my pleasure, but simply says my pleasure, a pleasure that is itself a normative state in which I feel the object's purposiveness for my cognitive powers. Now this pleasure contains an awareness of its own universal validity, um, Kant thinks, so in feeling pleasure, I am aware that any other subject ought to feel uh, the same pleasure that I feel ought to agree with me that the object is beautiful. But not because the object demands that everyone agree, but because the a priori principle of purposiveness demands it. That is, it's not that my pleasure fits the object, but that the object fits me or is purposive for my cognitive powers, cognitive powers I share with everyone else. This is the direction of fit that I think Kant emphasizes in his argument for universal validity. So the concept of the object plays no role in providing a standard for aesthetic judgment as it does in logical judging. It makes no sense within the Kantian framework to speak of aesthetic reasons for judgment, understood as features in the object that make the pleasure normatively required or that give me and others reason to feel pleasure. To think that, I think, is to misconstrue aesthetic judgments as logical. Although Kant thinks that aesthetic judgment involves self-awareness of an act of synthesis, a kind of revealing of my unconscious, as I'll explain below, namely an awareness of the coordinating synthesis of the faculties of imagination and understanding in their free play, it does not subsume the combined elements under a formal concept of their unity as in logical judgment. That is, the self-awareness in aesthetic judgment is not conceptual. Instead, Kant suggests that I merely feel the harmony or agreement of these powers. So I'm aware of their synthesis or their harmony, but only through feeling, not through thinking. Feeling rests not on, a fu not on functions, but on affections. It's a manner of being affected, a kind of Empfänglichkeit, which is receptivity in German. That's why he'll also say it's a kind of Empfindung or sensation. 
I'm aware of the synthesis in aesthetic judgment, not through the mere act of synthesis itself, not through mere spontaneity, but through the manner in which the act of synthesis affects me. In the anthropology, Kant distinguishes this self-affection in feeling, which he calls interior sense, <laughs> from inner sense, which is also a kind of self-affection, but one that gives me empirical knowledge of my inner states. Feeling is not a manner of knowing, not even of knowing myself, even though it is a way of being aware of myself, namely being aware of agreement or disagreement between my representation or between representations or powers within me. Feeling pleasure in the beautiful, a kind of aesthetic self-awareness, therefore must be distinguished from knowledge that I um, possess this feeling. Now these reflections inevitably raise the question, if aesthetic judgment lacks a logical form, why does Kant use the four moments of logical judging as a framework for thinking about aesthetic judgment? And why does he call the latter judgment at all? Why must feeling mimic the uh, architectonic structure of thinking? Or in the terms I'll use later on, why, why should the unconscious imitate the four moments of consciousness. Kant himself does not provide a justification for this framing of the analytic of the beautiful. But it is possible to glean two um, ways of responding to this question from other things he does say. First, as we'll see later on, feeling is not simply outside of the I think, but inside outside, because pleasure is an awareness of agreement with the understanding and thus with the I think. Second, aesthetic judgment is an exercise, Kant says, of the power of judgment, what has Kant, um, power of judgment, which he thinks of as a power that mediates between the understanding and sensibility. In its mediating role, the power of judgment is either determined by the understanding or guided by it. Thus, we should expect it to be guided by the four moments of the understanding's activities, the four moments of logical judgment. Already in the first critique, Kant distinguishes two dimensions of judgment. On the one hand, judgment is an intellectual, timeless, logical activity. As such, it's considered an exercise of what he calls the understanding, a capacity to judge, vermögen zu urteilen. On the other hand, judgment is what I will call a vital activity, so not a mere logical activity, but a, a living activity, by which I mean an activity through which the intellect or understanding relates to or informs the vital animal powers of perception and desire, thereby informing also how we experience time and live our lives. As such, judgment is considered an exercise, so as a vital activity, judgment is considered an exercise of the Urteilskraft, the power of judgment, which he distinguishes from the understanding, the vermögen, so what time the um, capacity to judge. Aesthetic judgments are judgments only in the latter sense, so they're not intellectual activities, but vital activities. That, like the vital activity of cognitive or logical judgments, which Kant calls determining judgments, relate the intellect or the understanding to sensibility. And, like cognitive judgments, are self-conscious acts of synthesis that claim to be valid for everyone. 
But unlike determining cognitive judgments, they do not subordinate sensibility to the understanding. So they don't determine objects given in sensibility by subsuming them under concepts, and they have no timeless logical form that can be isolated from sensibility and time conditions. So aesthetic judgments are not logical, but they mimic a lot of the features of logical judgments. Now, the power of judgment, I, I want to say something about that before moving on because it's important for what will follow. Um, the power of judgment in its logical or determining employment, Kant says, is the power to subsume particulars given in sensibility under concepts. Unlike the understanding, whose logical acts are governed by logical rules, the power of judgment, he says, is a special talent that cannot be taught but only practiced. If we always had to learn rules for applying concepts, we would also have to learn rules for applying these rules, and so on ad infinitum. We learn to apply concepts not by being taught rules for their application, but through the blind mechanism of practice or repetition. There is no logic, no canon or rule book, even for this determining exercise of the power of judgment. So repetition, to some extent, belongs to the, to the unconscious, not to logical apperception or the I think. Let's say now that I have repeatedly applied the concept dog to particulars, and now it's become easy or second nature to apply it. I no longer have to think about whether it applies. I do it habitually. I can, see a I can recognize a dog when I see one. <laughs> this can lead, this repetition in the use of a concept, can lead to dogmatism, which Kant describes as a kind of slumber, dogmatic slumber. I begin to apply the concept automatically, as though I were asleep. And this can happen not just with empirical concepts, but also with a priori concepts. It is only through the encounter with difficult cases, such as a dog that looks like a cat, where I'm not entirely sure, is this a dog, um, that the understanding is reawakened and again becomes critical in its application of concepts. It falls asleep through repetition and is reawakened through its encounter with something unfamiliar, something unlike what it's seen before. This is, by the way, a theme that Kant re repeats in his anthropology. Um, repetition exhausts us. A sermon read in the same tone throughout puts everyone to sleep. Um, whereas the encounter with something strange or out of the ordinary wakes, wakes us up, reawakens us. When I encounter a difficult case, I must reflect on the applicability of the concept. I must ask myself, what concept does this particular belong <laughs> under? It is through reflection, or what Kant calls the reflecting power of judgment, that the understanding again becomes critical in its application of concepts. So criticism can be called the wakefulness of our cognitive powers in contrast to their dogmatic slumber. Aesthetic judgment is a reflecting judgment, Kant says, and thus belongs to a critical or wakeful attentive state of mind. Uh, he often emphasizes that, emphasizes that pleasure in beauty is a feeling of the enlivening effect that the imagination in its encounter with an object has on the understanding. And as with logical reflection, aesthetic reflection awakens the understanding not by encounter with what is familiar and ordinary, but with something unfamiliar and 
uncanny, as I'll later explain, there is something in what it encounters that it cannot understand, something that exceeds logic and conceptual understanding. As we'll see, this encounter with what is unfamiliar is as much an encounter with an object as with myself. It's a self-encounter and revealing of what I'll later call the unconscious I. Okay, so turning to the second section on uh, the meaning of um, subjective. I've argued that um, aesthetic judgment is subjective because it lacks a logical form, and logical form is required for relations to an object and for objectivity. But this still leaves us with the question of how to positively understand the subjectivity of aesthetic judgments. In this section, I'll argue that they are subjective, not because they aim to be cognition but fail, or are somehow defective, illusory, deceptive, or erroneous. Instead, I'll try to give a, reason, a reading of Kant's claim from the deduction that aesthetic judgment expresses the non-logical, subjective conditions of objective cognition. Beauty is subjective not because it belongs only to the inner world of empirical subjects, but be because it belongs to the interior of the objective world as a whole, an interior that cannot be assimilated into objectivity. So we said above that aesthetic judgment is an exercise of the reflecting power of judgment, which Kant defines as a power to reflect on given representations, and given insensibility, in order to discover something universal, something they share in common, in order to discover concepts. But unlike the logical employment of reflection, its aesthetic employment frees itself from the aim or purpose of finding a determinate concept through which it can understand what it has encountered because it involves an awareness that the beautiful object exceeds the grasp of any concept or rule. This comes out in Kant's doctrine of aesthetic ideas. Beauty, he says, um, can in general be called the expression of aesthetic ideas, where an aesthetic idea is said to be, quote, that representation of the imagination that occasions much thinking, through, though without it being possible for any determinate thought, that is concept, to be adequate to it, which consequently no language fully attains or can make intelligible. So sometimes he'll say that beauty is unaussprechlich, it can't be um, linguistically articulated. As a re representation of the imagination of faculty that he defines in the first critique, for representing objects in intuition, an aesthetic idea is a singular representation, an intuition. So it's a representation of an individual, not like a concept, a general representation. Kant's thought here is that the appreciation of beauty is an appreciation of the absolute singularity and uniqueness of an object. The object is as just as it should be, but not because it satisfies some general rule or concept for how it should be. Um, so if you ask me how should it be, I can only point again to the object and say like that. One is reminded here of sense certainty in Hegel's phenomenology of spirit, which means this individual but cannot say what it means because everything it says, even the demonstrative this, is general and can be applied to other individuals. So part of what language does in linguistically uttered judgments of taste is 
To say that it cannot say what it means. To grasp the singularity of the object under a concept, and thus to say what we mean in the, application, in the appreciation of a beautiful object, would require what Leibniz called a complete concept, a concept that would distinguish this individual from every other individual in the entire universe, because only such concepts would be singular, would apply only to one object. The finite intellect recognizes the impossibility of such concepts for it, and thus that, recognizes that it has encountered something for which there is no concept. Even Leibniz thought you know, only God can think complete concepts. Beauty, therefore, doesn't represent a failure of cognition, but the necessary limits of cognition as such. So when we find an object beautiful, it is not because it has some general feature or property. Otherwise, one could replace this object with another one that has the very same feature. That is, it wouldn't be the uniqueness or singularity of the object that is pleasing. There is nothing in particular about the object that is what makes it beautiful, no, no determinate property. But it's also true that everything about the object makes it beautiful. This is why we're not simply silent but prompted to say endless things about the object's beauty. It occasions much thinking, as Kant says. Everything about it is just as it should be. But since there are no complete concepts, there's no concept for this everything, for the totality of things I can say. So the object is not an instance of a concept. Both the singularity of the, con of the object and the universality of what I can say exceed determinate concepts. There's no con uh, concept on either end. This is another way of bringing out that it cannot be the, the object of logical thinking, which always subsumes instances under concepts. Beauty thus consists in the object's felt agreement not with a concept, but with the faculty of concepts as such, the understanding, the capacity for endless discourse at least in the purest form of beauty, which he calls free or vague beauty. And since the understanding is the capacity not just to represent one thing in the world, but to represent anything, the world as a whole, we can say that the object agrees not just with me as a being in the world, but with the world as a whole. It fits into the world. So although Kant denies the possibility of Leibnizian complete concepts, he incorporates the Leibnizian insight that an object can only be appreciated in its radical singularity if it is seen as a mirror of the universe as a whole and thus of a totality. John McDowell once said that the philosophical problem of aesthetics is this. Quote, how can a mere feeling constitute an experience in which the world reveals itself to us. It's easy to see how we can think the world through cosmological ideas of reason, but it's hard to see how such rational ideas could sensibly appear. Kant, for instance, denies that they can sensibly appear in the objects of experience since they have no determining or constitutive role for experience. But he thinks that rational ideas, idea of the world as a whole, can somehow sensibly appear indirectly through aesthetic ideas. So McDowell's question is, how can feeling do that, enable me to feel the world? It's not just through aesthetic judgment that we appreciate the absolute singularity of an object. 
Kant thinks that the practical knowledge of persons involves acknowledging their dignity, their absolute worth, their singularity and irreplaceability. They don't have a price or a market value and thus cannot be exchanged for something else with the same value because what makes them valuable is their absolute singularity. So practical love, I think, in its highest form for Kant, has a similar structure to what we saw in beauty. If I really love you, then there's nothing about you, no particular feature or property that I love, and yet I also love everything about you. So it has the same sort of structure. So we might say that the beautiful, like the person, the free moral agent, is priceless. However, Kant does not ascribe to beauty absolute or unconditional worth because he thinks this would require knowledge of it as unconditionally good. And since this kind of knowledge is practical, it is not disinterested, whereas pleasure in beauty is. Acknowledging persons is practical knowledge because it's the same as knowing to treat them in a certain way. It has an effect on my actions. That's why it's practical and because it's knowledge of why I should treat them in this way. I have an unconditioned reason. That's why it's rational knowledge. When we know persons to be persons, to have an unconditionally good will and thus to be priceless and irreplaceable, we know them not as appearances, according to Kant, but as noumena, as intelligible beings, beings whose being is their being known. What I do not know is that the sensible being I see before me realizes her noumenal character, or even that my sensible being realizes my noumenal character. To know that would be to know that we have achieved the highest good in which everything is as it ought to be. This is known as Kant's opacity thesis. We never know whether sensible inclinations aren't getting in the way of our moral ends. In the case of beauty, by contrast, the priceless singularity of the object appears to me in sensibility. Its singularity is not noumenal, as in the moral case. But beauty cannot be a phenomenon, an object of theoretical knowledge, for such knowledge is only of instances of concepts and cannot grasp what is radically singular, as we saw. Nor can it be a noumenon, an object of rational knowledge, for such knowledge would not be sensible but practical. Therefore, it is not an object of knowledge at all. It's neither a phenomenon nor a noumenon. It can only be felt, not known. Now, Kant in several places suggests that there would be no beauty if there were no moral good or if nature were not informed by freedom. For instance, he says aesthetic ideas are indirect representations of moral ideas. Beauty is thus a symbol um, a symbol is an indirect sensible representation of morality. The mind would never be, quote, aware of a certain ennoblement and elevation above the mere receptivity for a pleasure from sensible impressions if it were not for its relation to the good. So to partially answer McDowell's question, we can only feel the world, the whole of the sensory world, if we can lift ourselves above it through knowledge of the good, practical knowledge. The good goes beyond all objects of theoretical knowledge, everything that is, because it is that which is to be or what ought to be. If there were only nature and no freedom, or if we were beings who have their home in nature, there would be no beauty. Feeling would not elevate itself above 
pleasures in the agreeable. But if there were only freedom and no nature, or if we were holy beings who only have their home in the intelligible realm, there also would be no beauty, because everything would be good and thus tied with moral interest. There is beauty only because we are homeless, or because our being is to be in transition, uh, namely in transition towards the highest good in which nature and freedom, what is and what ought to be, coincide. There is space for beauty only in finite intellects who are in an eternal exile and never home, not in holy or infinite intellects. So there's only beauty in finite, uh, for finite intellects. Does this mean that beauty appears only from within the perspective of a finite being or species of being in the world, the human being, and that it disappears outside of this perspective? Is it like a dream that appears in feeling, but from which we wake when we are thinking, a false appearance that corresponds to nothing real? Our answer to this question about the aesthetic standpoint will to some extent depend on our understanding of the practical standpoint from which we think the whole of nature under the idea of freedom. I think it can be argued, and this is something I argue in another paper um, elsewhere, that the practical standpoint for Kant is the standpoint of reason as such, not a limited standpoint of a being in the world that reasons. It is reason that is practical and efficacious, not just particular beings with physical powers. So it is the whole of objective nature, not just nature as it appears to us humans from our limited standpoint, that is informed by freedom. This is why you find Kant saying in the third critique that the highest good, the consummate end of morality, isn't just the final end for a particular species in nature, but for nature as a whole. Because of the primacy of, of practical reason and of the practical standpoint, there is no standpoint on the objective world from outside of it. All we can do in science is abstract from in, uh, freedoms informing of nature. But we can't pretend as though natural science alone were the standpoint of objectivity and reason, or that theoretical reason could raise itself above practical reason. This reading has the consequence that feeling, which Kant thinks of as an awareness of agreement or disagreement with my vital powers, the powers that hold together the various faculties of the soul, theoretical and practical reason, is also a feeling of the vital power of the universe that holds together the whole of the sensible world with the intelligible world. The beautiful object thus agrees not just with the life power in an individual being or even species of being in the world, but with what Hegel will later, later call the universal blood, das allgemeine Blut, or spirit that pulsates through the whole of nature informed by freedom. So does this mean that beauty is a true appearance of the supersensible bond holding nature and freedom together, and that nature is inherently alive, that spirit is in nature? We said that beauty is not a false appearance or illusion relative to a particular perspective. Does it follow that it is a true appearance and that beauty belongs to the fabric of the world, namely that dark and mysterious fabric that holds everything together? Kant's answer is no. Beauty is not objective. It does not reveal truths about the world. 
I think this is the point at which Kant would say we are asking the wrong question. We are searching for a metaphysics of beauty and are led to express ourselves in contradictory statements. We say beauty is something, but beauty is nothing. Beauty is not the appearance of what is, and it is not the appearance of what is not. But we only get ourselves tangled in this way because we are attempting to make sense of beauty metaphysically. There is no metaphysics of beauty because there can be no science, no logic of beauty, as he says in section 44 of the Critique of Judgment. And all metaphysical inquiry is logical. Logic explodes when we try to think about beauty. Or to use Lyotard's words, Kant's thoughts about beauty create logical monsters. <laughs> beauty is the object only of aesthetic, not logical reflection. You can think about poetry only by thinking poetically. That is, from within aesthetic feeling and not logical thinking. Although beauty is not objective because it's not the object of logical discourse, it isn't outside the objective standpoint, and it isn't inside the objective standpoint. It's both outside and inside, like a subjective excess that attaches to objectivity as such. Beauty does not disappear from the objective standpoint, not because it expresses something that is objectively there, but cannot be known, but because it expresses the subjective condition of all knowing, which is the same as the subjective condition of all objects of knowledge. This condition is living. Knowing is not possible except as an exercise of living. So the con subjective condition of knowing is, is that we're alive. Our living, however, is not itself a possible object of knowledge, and thus not a possible object, but is irreducibly subjective. So it can only be a subject, not an object. It can only be felt, not known. Okay, I turn now to the third section, beauty as a revealing of the unconscious. I've argued that aesthetic judgment is subjective because we feel something that cannot be known, that remains dark, that cannot be digested by logical synthesis, I think, uh, a darkness that lies at the core of my being and of the objective world. And now I want to say a few words before closing about why this means that feeling of pleasure in beauty reveals the unconscious. This uh, section will be sketchy since I'm, it's still a work in progress. As we've seen, aesthetic judgment does not bring representations together in the I think. When I judge aesthetically, I cannot say why I judge as I do. I'm not conscious of the ground of my act of judging. I'm thus not fully transparent to myself. But my judgment also isn't something that just happens to me or that I passively discover within me, like the judgments of prejudice that I simply find but an un am unable to explain how I came to have. Since these are judgments I do not identify with, judgments I find alien and that I reject as soon as I recognize that I've been hijacked by them. I do not reject my aesthetic judgments of beauty, even though I don't know how I came to have them or what it is that explains their hold on me, the logical ground of the act of synthesis. The eye of aesthetic judgment is the eye not of consciousness, but it also is not completely other than me. Or as Friedrich Schlegel says later, aesthetic judgment requires us to recognize something that is, quote, not I, nor comes from the eye, 
and which is also not merely a non-I. The I of aesthetic judgment is a stranger to me. It's not I, but it's also the core of me. It's not non-I. I will call this I, which is neither I nor non-I, the unconscious I. The unconscious is not the mere absence of consciousness. I might not be aware that Doug is in the room, but that doesn't show that Doug somehow figures in my unconscious. The unconscious is more like an absence that is a presence, like a ghost or spirit. That's what a ghost is, an absence that is a presence. The unconscious um, has an effect on us. Now, the unconscious in this sense can be divided into two phenomena. First, there are the phenomena of delusion, error, and illusion, such as some of those that Kant speaks of in the maladies of the mind and dreams of a spirit seer. Here, the unconscious falls outside of consciousness. And second, there is the unconscious of aesthetic judgment and genius, and perhaps some encounters with the dead, as Kant suggests in the dreams of the spirit seer. I will argue that this unconscious has the character of what Freud calls the uncanny, something unfamiliar in what is familiar. The unconscious in this sense is internal to consciousness, pervading it like a ghost that haunts our house from within. So first let's turn to our, uh, return to our example of a prejudice that I reject as soon as I see my error. I throw it outside the body of judgments I call mine, outside of the I think. I disown it as soon as I recognize its falsity, waking from the illusion as from a dream. However, although I have logically rejected it and shorn it of all logical force by throwing it outside the logical eye, it might still have a non-logical, unconscious hold on me. So for instance, uh, this example is often used in the transparency, self-consciousness literature. Suppose that I learn that flying is safer than driving. I'm no longer tempted to logically judge the opposite to be true because of the lack of any logical grounds for its assertion. Yet I, feel, uh, yet I still find myself shaking from fear and saying we should drive rather than fly. My thought, driving is safer than flying, is held in place not by any logical ground, but by fear. The thought has a non-logical, unconscious hold on me. In the same way, if I've recognized a, a perceptual illusion, it no longer deceives me, so it no longer has a logical hold on my judgments, but it may still retain a hold on our sensible faculties outside of logical consciousness. And finally, in evil, I suppose myself to have a good reason, a logical ground for acting as I do, but in fact, my action has its source in a non-rational inclination of self-love. In these cases, the unconscious is external to logical consciousness and the logical eye. It is an alien force that launches attacks on our house from the outside, even when it pretends to be inside, as in the case of evil. Here, the un of the unconsciousness um, is the un of lack or privation or <coughs> evil. The absence of a logical ground or the presence of a non-logical ground where there should be a logical one. The unconscious in this sense is a seat of error and delusion. The darkness within the beautiful is of a very different sort. As we've seen in our discussion of aesthetic ideas, there's something in the beautiful that exceeds both theoretical and practical knowledge. Here, the un of the unconscious is not the un of privation. 
but the un of excess of that which cannot be digested by logical synthesis and the I think. Uh, I think this is an un that cannot be understood through logical negation at all. It's as it were um, opposed to everything logical. It is neither something that is nor something that is not, neither something good nor something bad. It cannot be subsumed under laws of the understanding or under laws of practical reason, nor is it rejected by them. Moreover, the community I feel with other rational subjects in aesthetic pleasure is not a connectedness with them under a law or concept. It's not like the moral community, which is held together under a common law by a feeling of respect. It's a lawless community, held together by feeling but without a law. This is, I think, the same lawfulness, or sorry, lawlessness that uh, Plato describes as democratic, the rule of the masses, where each person is their own law, that he fear, feared would be unleashed by admitting beautiful art into his republic. In the dreams of a spirit seer, Kant approvingly quotes Aristotle, who says, quote, when we are awake, we share a common world, but when we dream, each has a world of his own. If by common world we mean a world under common laws, then the aesthetic world is a dream. But it's a dream that is at the same time awake. It is communal. It's a lawlessness that is lawful and a non-community that is communal because it agrees with the realm of law and community. It's a feeling of the promotion of our cognitive powers, both directly of the understanding and indirectly of practical reason. This is why aesthetic judgments are not rejected or thrown out of the logical eye, but retained as its house guests, even when their subjectivity is acknowledged. Their hold on us is an expression of the general subjective conditions under which any cognition has a hold on us, and is thus internal to the I think and to the logical eye. This idea of something dark and unfamiliar being internal to what is light and familiar is reminiscent of what Freud calls the uncanny in his essay with that title, the German title, Unheimlich. As Freud um, points out, there are two m meanings of the German word heimlich in das Unheimliche, the uncanny. On the one hand, heimlich means familiar, native, belonging to the home. And on the other hand, heimlich means concealed, kept from sight or secretive, as when I do something heimlich. The uncanny, the unheimliche, is to be distinguished from what is simply fearful, something that threatens us from the outside. Freud suggests that the unheimliche coincides in its meaning with das heimliche, because on the one hand it is something unfamiliar, eerie, untamed, and thus something unknown or concealed, and on the other hand, Although it ought to have remained secret and hidden, it has come to light, and so something revealed. It is, as it were, the return of what was repressed, what I have hidden from myself, a return or re-representation of the unconscious. His example for the uncanny is the doll in E.T.A. Hoffman's story of the Sandman, that is, quote, to all appearances a living being, so it's something non-living that appears as living. We encounter something un unfamiliar in what is familiar. What is ordinary suddenly appears strange. It is impossible not to think here of Kant's description of beautiful art, 
art that appears as nature, and of beautiful nature, nature that appears as art. The dead is beautiful when it gives the semblance of life, as perhaps in Plato's uh, report of Leontius's encounter with the corpses outside the walls of the polis that he can't help but stare at. And finally, overpowered by his appetite, he says to his eyes, quote, Look for yourselves, you evil wretches, take your fill of the beautiful sight. Leontius feels pleasure even in the pain of seeing what he sees. Kantian beauty has something uncanny about it in the Freudian sense because it's something non-logical that is to all appearances logical, something dark and unfamiliar internal to what is familiar. It doesn't frighten us because we immediately feel in this confrontation with the uncanny enlivened and at home with ourselves. But it enlivens us by making us feel at home with our homelessness. Usually we repress the indeterminacy at the root of our being because it means that we have not become what we ought to be. And this is painful. Therefore, our nature and nature as a whole uh, loves to hide. This indeterminacy is related to our mortality, the incessant passage of time. We are never at home because we will never achieve the highest good where time would cease to pass and we achieve eternal life. And yet it is in confrontation with this pain that the pleasure of beauty arises, not because this pleasure gives us salvation, but because it's a feeling that nature is in accord with or is purposive for our striving for salvation. It agrees with our being in transition, our being homeless. The pleasure here is not in overcoming of or release from pain, but in enveloping an acceptance of it, an acceptance of ourselves. It's a feeling that time, in its inevitable and painful passing, is eternally present. Unlike the sublime, which makes us feel immortal by transporting us out of time, the beautiful makes us feel the danger of decay and time's passing, and thus feels, makes us feel our own mortality. But in staring at our death, at the passage of time in the abyss, at the edges of the sensible and intelligible worlds, we feel all interests in the future and knowledge of and regrets about the past completely fade away. Beauty makes us feel that the present loses the limits of the past and future, and thus that the present has become eternal. Okay, conclusion. Um, contemporary Kantians almost always emphasize the bright and happy side of, of beauty. It's a feeling of pleasure, uh, of, uh, sorry, of peace and harmony with the world and with others. My purpose in this paper is to argue that the subjectivity of aesthetic judgment is an expression of the dark side of beauty that I think Kant, like Plato and many others in the tradition, appreciated and that is immortalized by Rilke's famous words, das Schöne ist der schrecklichen Anfang, den wir noch gerade ertragen und wir bewundern es so, weil es gelassen verschmäht, uns zu zerstören. So in English, beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror that we are still able to bear. So we bear and accept, not terror, but the beginning of terror. Um, and he goes on, we revere it so because it calmly disdains to destroy us. It doesn't destroy us, but is sensi um, 
but by sensibly presenting us with the abyss at the edges of the sensible and intelligible worlds, enlivens us and enables us to live with ourselves. Cultures without beautiful art suffer depression and lifelessness because they have not confronted the incompleteness that is the core of their being on earth. They have repressed the unconscious and are not willing to reveal it through beauty. It's often thought that Kant's claim that beauty is subjective somehow denigrates beauty and that we would valorize it by raising beauty to the status of something objective, something that reveals truths about the world or about ourselves. But to acknowledge the subjectivity of beauty is to acknowledge our finitude and beauty's independence from concerns with knowledge, even with knowledge of ourselves, thereby safeguarding the autonomy of taste. Kant recognized the complete uselessness of beauty for our practical and cognitive aims, and he saw in that uselessness and excess its greatest and most enduring value. To make beauty cognitive and objective would be to destroy it, to pretend as though there were nothing incomplete about ourselves, as though we could be fully and entirely objects of knowledge, as though we were wholly returned to ourselves. It would be to say, perhaps with Sartre and Hegel, that there is no unconscious. This would be to perpetuate the repression of the unconscious, the blindness to it, that is so characteristic of human life and that prevents us from progress, even in our cognitive endeavors. Thank you.